0: Welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast, where we're joined by your hosts, Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. In each episode, we'll be sharing valuable insights and tips to help you turn your NDIS business into a profitable venture. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your business to the next level, you've come to the right place. Let's stop surviving and start thriving. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast. Uh, I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-host, Tanya, and we've got some awesome people with us today who are providers in Australia, and I'm going to introduce you to Tiff, Josh, and Rachel. Please say hello, guys. Hi. Happy
1: to be here. Hello. Yes,
0: we're we're doing a panel today.
2: There's five of us. We've never had five before. So this is either going to be really great or really chaotic. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. So let's give it a go and see. Yeah. Um,
0: we'll so we,
2: we, we have Tiffany. Tiffany has been working in disability services for six years. And in 2020, she started her own organization, specially, specializing in high intensity skill supports and mental health community programs. She's passionate about offering inclusive and flexible work environments and believes that SSQ's staff culture is the single biggest asset to her organization and is what drives her business towards success. We also have Josh. Josh formed his disability support company Equal from the encouragement and support of many of his colleagues that all work at large service providers that sadly went into liquidation. His team saw a need for proactive, well-intentioned cell providers in WA and impressed that upon Josh to take the WA operation from the, liquidate, the liquidating company under a new name and so Equal came to be. Entering the industry just in the last 12 months, Josh brings a fresh set of eyes to the disability industry, eyes that have a career in identifying outdated processes and procedures, and problem solving for better sustainable practices. It's Josh's ultimate aim to help integrate disability and other disadvantaged people into everyday life of Australians and increase our social responsibility and makeshift for one another. And and last but not least, we have Rachel um, from Alara Support Services. Alara Support Services is an innovative and all-embracing disability support agency that provides supported independent living, or SIL, with the goal of supporting our participants to live life on their own terms with the supports they need to make that happen. SIL is accommodation provided by Alara, a comfortable, completely accessible and beautifully appointed home with with a carer on site to help our participants with things like making meals, personal care, medication assistance, social engagement, and so much more. Uh, So you're all SIL experts and in the SIL space, and today we are talking about SIL. And so it's um, great to have you all. Thanks for joining us uh, on this this podcast today.
0: Thanks so much. It's good to have you guys here. Um, For our listeners, so we can get a bit of an idea of the spread of the businesses, could we start with each of you giving us an idea of, you know, Um, you know, how many SIL properties you got and participants and whereabouts you guys are located. Uh, Let's start with Josh.
3: Sure. Uh, So we're quite fresh um, in Western Australia. That's where we're predominantly located. Uh, We have just three different participants at the moment across three different properties. And, and yeah, we're still uh, very much establishing ourselves in the space. so far. Yeah, yeah,
0: brilliant. Fantastic. And, and Rachel, what about yourself?
4: Um, we uh, have 16 SIL sites. Uh, don't ask me how many my <laughs> Um, I, I didn't feel them for this podcast today, but there's a few, yep. um, and we're based uh, in New South Wales, uh, Western Sydney, predominantly and down through the Illawarra, so Wollongong, those kind of that don't know the area and out into some rural locations. So Orange, Bathurst, that kind of area.
0: Fantastic. And Tiffany, what about yourself?
1: Uh, so we're based in Brisbane and we extend out to the Lockie Valley, the Redlands and the Gold Coast. Um, And for our SEAL program, we currently are in the process of opening our sixth SEAL home um, in the next few weeks, which will bring us uh, through to 11 SEAL participants.
0: Yeah, fantastic.
4: Can I just say I'm so jealous of your guys' bio? That was that was such a competitive bio. I was like, oh my god, that's amazing. I need to fix mine.
2: But <laughs> well, funnily enough, Rachel, my one of our marketing team wrote a bio for you and i had replaced it, but I'm I'm happy to send it to you.
4: <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you could do a better job. That's
2: fine. <laughs> I could definitely talk about how amazing you are, Rachel. Your your work and what you do. Yeah. Definitely not summed up in your bio. I think all the amazing work that you do at Alara is just just outstanding.
4: Thank you. Yeah, we're a SIL operator, not a bio marketing expert,
2: right? <laughs> Yeah.
4: <laughs> so
2: I, I, for me, I wanted to do, a, well, Paul and I talked about doing a spotlight on SIL because SIL really seems to be a hot topic. It seems to be that every phone call I get is how do I set up a SIL? How do I grow more SILs? How do I go from 10 to 20 SILS? Um, and obviously, I uh, uh, Josh and Rachel both came to the Bali retreat, and Rachel is was to present on how to 10x your business and, and how to grow SIL houses. So we thought that we would do an episode to explain really what does SIL look like and what is the business model and what does even SIL mean? So that you know, the good and the bad, so that if someone's considering moving into SIL, they're a little bit more informed about what does that actually mean. Um, and, yeah, so I, I guess my first question for all of you is why did you decide to move into SIL um, and what what was it about the business model of SIL that you decided upon? Um, and, yeah, let, let's just start with why you chose SIL. So I, I might start with Tiffany because she went last 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 time.
1: Sure, I think my experience in, in sil has always been that it's like a rewarding opportunity to have high impact and high influence in the outcome of a person's life. Obviously, you know we're with them twenty four seven. We're with them with a lot more time. Um, and most of my worked experience with um, supporting sil participants has been with people who have limited to no informal supports, and so that has been a great motivator for me to create systems and teams that can give that person the greatest chance of feeling safe and pers- purposeful. Um, in addition to that, probably I believe that I have the skills to be able to make our SIL program profitable uh, and with those profits then we're able to expand our reach, obviously, and then we're able to better support the community and to grow our team and to give them the resources that they need to have, you know, a good workplace um, but also be, you know, a quality provider. Brilliant. Wonderful.
4: Great. And and Rachel, why, why SIL for you? The reason why I got into SIL, because SIL is the only thing that I know. I've run and operated SIL homes my entire career, Um, starting off as a support worker, going into middle management, senior management, executive leadership roles, always in the SIL space. So um, it just was the natural progression for me in terms of why SIL. I love whole of life care. I can't just you know, I couldn't just go in and just you know do you know short sharp shifts um, and that wasn't the business that I thought that I could <clears throat> grow and develop um, there was a unique um, market for people with really complex needs. That people weren't servicing um, or servicing really well. Uh, dual diagnosis with like a psychosocial illness—that uh, w- that was a gap. Um, not many people were doing end of life care, um, and I think that's a really beautiful support model as well. Um, and making it safe in the out of home care space for families as well. Yeah, um, I've definitely went into that, and I think we're we'll just echoing whatever Tiffany said.
0: Yeah, cool. <laughs> and,
4: and this is a bit of a. a,
2: a Trick question for Josh because Josh didn't really choose Seal. It was like Seal chose him, right? <laughs>
0: yes.
3: Yeah. I I think um, for me, yeah. Look, I I definitely inherited uh, all of my efforts within this space. But I what I've the way that I describe Seal and when someone asks me what I what I do or what Equal does, is that we we contribute to a participants. Uh, safe home environment. We provide them with a, um, a secure um, family environment so that they can kind of get out of that survival mode and into that more thriving sort of, um, uh, I guess, mode because a lot of people that are living with disability are living day to day. And as Rachel has said, there is a, an underrepresentation of service providers that are catering towards those higher intensity needs, need disability um, disabilities and disabled participants, so and, and often with multiple different diagnoses. So right. it, by by sort of um, catering to that, I feel like we can really give some long-term uh, positive outcomes for those participants. And really, I think there's a lot of people in SEAL and in the disability space that are looking for this sort of short-term uh, outcomes in reality we need to be thinking a lot more progressively long term so what is what does is five-year plan look like what does a 10-year plan look like uh, for a care plan for a participant and 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 you know something that was taught to me very early on was um trying not to measure success in these larger grandiose sort of outcomes that we would normally sort of perceive from you know my corporate days um you know just tiny the tiniest little behavior changes is such a monumental shift and, and such a positive thing. And so, when I discovered that and I fell in love with that, SIL was really the only option for me because I, I feel like that's where, you know, we can make the biggest difference, as Tiffany had said as well. That is absolutely where you can make such a strong difference to participant outcome. Mm.
2: And, and so, before we go any further, what is SIL? I know what SIL is, but if 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 someone is considering it for the first time, how would you explain what the supports are that you provide as a SIL provider? Anyone want to go first?
3: Sure. I, I think because I'm I'm also a layman that's come into this right, um, very 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 fresh to the industry. Yeah. Um, I I think SIL is where we um, provide well supported independent living. So. You know, we're providing a secure uh, home environment and helping to increase the capacity for the individual through um, collaboration or collaborative efforts with other therapies that are coming in and, and ourselves as well and our own initiatives to be able to uh, increase the, the capacity of that um, participant within uh, the scope of their or the limitations of whatever disability or diagnosis that they have. Um, and the, uh, the ultimate goal of that is to to hopefully lower their, um, their need for care so that they can properly and as much as possible integrate into their community.
2: Wonderful. Anyone? Yeah, want sure. to-
3: but it's accommodation. <laughs> <laughs> I want
2: to pick up on, on accommodation because when people call me and say, "I had someone today uh, a church who called me today and says, "I want to be a cell provider." And I was like, okay, why do you want to be a civil provider? And they said, well, we want to do accommodation. And they don't really know what that means. So when they say accommodation, are you renting a house and putting a participant in it? Are you going and putting them in a hotel? Are you, you know, finding them, a, is it or respite? What exactly? Yeah, is it Airbnb? Is it, uh, you know, within a specialist disability accommodation premises? Mm. Is it all those things? Is it none of those things? Is it a mix of those models?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Rachel you want to have a go at that one I would have just I would I would have just hung up on that person that sounds <laughs> incredibly
0: draining <laughs> 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 <You're dry. laughs> Problematic, um,
4: <man>. also um <laughs> I should probably ask can we curse on this podcast you can or no cursing? fine <laughs> <laughs> okay all right because cool, that that tends to slip out. I just wanted to say I fucking love Josh's, like, fresh perspective. Like, how cool is it, like, to have somebody come in and have a fresh set of eyes and talk about it so, like, not differently, but just with, like, innovatively and make it sound a little bit sexier than normal, right?
3: I no? come from my, my branding days.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> they come from marketing.
4: <laughs> Um, so what was
2: the question, Tanya? <laughs> so so explain, explain to a brand new person what it, what does accommodation mean as far as SIL? What are you actually providing and how does that work?
4: Uh, so how i why explain SIL is exactly in the acronym. It's supporting someone to live independently um, across a 24 by 7 setting. Um, we'll have somebody there to give them all of the necessary supports to live independently, whatever that is to that person. Yeah. Accommodation is just the brick and mortar, yeah.
2: And so, in in your model, Rachel, do you rent a house and then you're providing the rent, so you're their landlord, they're your tenant, as well as providing supports. <laughs>
4: Uh, in some, so we have a couple of different makeups. So we have some properties that we lease either through a residential agreement or through a commercial head lease arrangement. We have uh, properties that we own. We have properties that we collaborate on with SDA providers or other developers building in the space. Um, so it would depend on how we're operating that home to whether we're the direct landlord or whether the SDA provider is claiming a portion of that person's funding, thereby becoming the landlord. Yeah.
2: And Tiff or Josh, did you have any different models to that that you think are worth noting?
1: Uh we have a few are uh, still properties that are owned by the participants and we just operate inside of their own homes. Or I've had experiences before where participants have um, come together and bought properties together and we've just operated inside of that environment. I think it's oh, I re- love
4: that too.
1: Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think it's you just how re- off
4: arrangement, right? Yeah, oh, cool.
1: Yeah, I think that. the the benefit can be empowering people to make their own decisions and not wanting to have too much control over somebody's life. Um, so we're very much just when people come to us and say, what can you give us? It's what do you want? Um, and just building a support model around that. Hmm. Love yeah, that.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Yep.
2: And, and so how does SIL differ then than the personal care type services where you are sending a support worker to someone's home? I'm open and fair. Whoever would like to answer that.
3: I think um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. I I think uh, that there is a little bit of grayness there, and um, but for seal and how it differentiates between, um, I guess other sort of care yeah. models is that seal is typically twenty four seven care, whereas other you know, uh, or or at least close, quite close enough to that. Um, that model uh yeah so it's it's 24 7 care seven days a week uh and then you know different or participants will have different funding um that will allow them to be the like a three to one ratio or two to one ratio or one to one ratio and um that funding enables that through us as a sil provider
0: yeah
1: wonderful um, i think i think too like the only real other way that i feel like is important to note that it differs is you know the outcome framework and the responsibility that we have as an organisation, that you know for to provide yeah. um, in-home community access things like that. The perhaps the goals and the the purpose of that shift is quite different to the holistic view that we take on support of that whole person's life when they're in a still environment. Um, you know, you take on quite a large responsibility when you. Um, yeah, when you when you're living with somebody twenty four seven, and perhaps they don't have anybody else in their life that is providing them any additional informal support, um, the responsibilities is drastically different, and so you need to have that strong outwork framework, outcome framework built in, so that you're making sure that you sort of keeping an eye on all aspects of their life.
3: Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I I, I definitely really um, resonate with the the goals because I think. We, you know at a at the previous company um that I worked at we also did community access as well, and that's quite different you know and different goals different you know just different outcomes that we're trying to reach whereas you know going back to what how Rachel describes seal supported independent living like just supporting people to to live independently it, it is very different um uh, very different goals to have top of mind when you're entering that person's home mm. to to provide that support and that care
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Look, uh, we had um, yeah. Tiffany come into our group program a little while ago and sort of run through a lot of the processes that she she runs. She's very, uh, obviously, in-depth in what you're doing there, which was absolutely brilliant. Again, thank you, Tiffany. Um, but I'd love to know from from any of you and, and whoever may be sort of the freshest, I guess, um, at actually setting up your first home because... Some people listening might be thinking, this is a really a place that I feel passionate about getting into, but it can look like quite a mountain to climb. So, who would like to answer a question just around getting set up with the first SIL home and, and how that came to be?
4: You want a freshie? Better ask Josh.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure.
4: Yeah. Oh, so,
3: um, it, it, can be quite nerve-wracking i think yeah. from from my perspective and it was certainly how i met tanya as well was just like and I've, be, I've i've been telling everybody you know i'm not from this industry i don't have that experience if you see something that i'm doing i shouldn't be let me know if you see something that i'm not doing that i should be let me know it's the appetite for for mm-hmm. you know for constantly wanting to be better um but but that's something yeah, that true. i'm i'm proud of to have I, I may not have all of the answers so for me, setting up, um, you know, a seal home, obviously, finding the right accommodation, um, you know, is 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 part of it. And I mean, I don't know the other parts of Australia, but certainly here in Western Australia, we're going through a rental crisis at the moment, so availability is pretty low. So having an established network of, um, you know, people in the real estate space that can help to sort of um provide some available homes that might be suitable for people living with disabilities obviously choosing a home is is kind of important as well because you know it will limit your um i guess the the type of participants or rather the disabilities that you can cater to uh and then you know before you even get to that part you really need to make sure that your processes and procedures are sort of locked in and and um that's part of the reason why i've been sort of going to, to tanya because um yeah, trying to establish the right processes and procedures. You, you know, I think that this industry is is full of um, cowboy ways of doing things and just getting things done. Um, you know, and that's okay because sometimes there there are some really really good, well intentioned people that are just you know. Um, getting stuff done and it's brilliant and they're, they're getting outcomes. But unfortunately, of course, if you build that business on a house of cards, it's likely to blow over, you know, at, at the mm. slightest breeze. So I think from my perspective, it's about establishing really good structure. Um, you know, so good team, you know, good, um, mentors, you know, as in support worker mentors and, um, trying to get really, really good support workers in that have the same vision and focus that we want to establish at Equal, which is, you know, about the positive um, outcomes for participants rather than just uh, caretaking people. So, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a lot to consider. I guess I would, I've kind of got a bit of a checklist that I tend to go through, but ensuring that the stable foundation is there first and then, you know, going through the accommodation side of things you have got to fill the, the accommodation as well with furniture and yeah you know make it make the house a home basically and then you've got to you know make sure that you have people in your pipeline as in support workers within your pipeline that you could fill a shift you know fill shifts with but that's also an important part as well because i think that there's a lot of um providers out there both with community engagement and also um in the seal space too that really are just putting support workers with any participant. And I don't think that that's really constructive or helpful for mm-hmm. those long-term um, outcomes. And so, really, every participant is going to be quite different and having some level of engagement from the participant on how they want their home to feel uh, and who, what type of um, personality profiles that they would do really well with working with from a support worker perspective is also really important too. So, it you, you know, it can be partially led by... Um, by, by the participant that you're thinking of when you're establishing a SEAL home, but it, it, it should also be partially led by the company and the, the structure and sort of the way that you guys typically will do things as well.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a really important, you know, just yeah. making sure you got everything in place because there is so much that you've got to be accountable for when you're helping someone live independently. That's, that's brilliant. Hey, Tiffany, could you take us through an idea of... Um, when you have open homes, were they participant-led or were they sort of you saying, I have this space? Or was it like a client said, I want to, uh, you know, have you guys help me with SIL? Or did you say, I've got a space, who who wants it? How did that come about for you?
1: Um, my experience at SSQ so far has mostly been participant-led. People have come to us um, with ideal situations and they've said, hey, can you can you fill this gap for us? And we've been able to jump in. Um, you know, the first handful of SILs were people that we were already supporting in our um, in our day program, and they've just sort of went through life transitions, and which resulted in them in requiring CIL support. And we supported them through the funding application process. And then once they were funded, the participant and their family asked us to be the implementing provider. Um, right. Quite a few of those people already had their own housing situations, and we sort of just um, jumped into whatever was kind of happening at the time. Um, but a lot of the work recently that we've been doing is partnering with SDA providers and so they'll usually get inquiries um, come through for the house and so they, they want somebody to provide support in that house. And so, um, you know, we we offer them our services and we meet with them and make sure that what they want and what we want can align and can work together and that's usually, that's kind of been our last handful of um, opens that we've done.
0: Yeah, great. Oh, it's brilliant. I- Getting people exactly what they need is is got to be a good feeling. Yeah, hey, um, definitely. Rachel, uh, one more question for you. Could you take yeah. us through your process for like choosing a location, and um, you know, all the way through to probably you know on, onboarding the participants into that space?
4: Um, I suppose um, we look at some, we do a bit of gap analysis. So we work with, um, like Summer Foundation do a really good gap analysis um, on different service areas. We look at where we can add the most value. So what's close to where we currently live, you know, the networks that we currently have, um, where our participants want to live, uh, where there's gaps, like where there's currently no still settings. Mm -hmm. Like we've had to transition people from rural areas because, there's no accommodation or still there. So they're having to move to, you know, out of their area, which they've got local connections with and family and all that kind of stuff. So we've, we've built into an area. Uh, what was the second part of that question?
0: Oh, just just going through to actually getting the clients sort of set up into the home and, and uh, on, onboarded there as well.
4: Yeah, so depending on where they're transitioning from, um, so we go on an onboarding journey. Obviously, if they're already a participant of ours, it looks a little bit different. But you know, traditionally, we would go out and do an initial assessment, usually a three-hour assessment, um, where we you know go through you know their current living situations, any health and medical concerns, what their support needs look like, who they want to live with, what their ideal support worker is, what their current weekly schedule is, what they're working towards, who their key stakeholders are. Da-da-da-da-da and um and then we will ensure that we obviously if we're looking at placing them in one of our already like operating sill homes. Then we'll work with the relevant stakeholders. We'll put together a really robust transition plan. Um, I better plug Tanya. We make sure we've risk assessed it just quietly. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've, we've done all of that stuff. Um, we'll plan some transitional sort of um, meetups if that's appropriate. Really, right. it's it's participant-led yeah. in, in terms of their onboarding and as to how quickly it has to happen versus how long we can draw it out
0: yeah that's really good
4: so I, I the next question that I have for all three of you
2: is what are the biggest challenges for you in being a cell provider um maybe we'll start with with Josh
3: yeah sure so i I think in order to get the the best outcomes for the participant really it's. Um, the challenges that, that I've had is in working with all of the other stakeholders. Um, so uh, ensuring that there are really good stakeholders that are proactive, engaged with the, the, the support that they're actually providing their participants. So, you know, it might be support coordinators. It could be behavior support practitioners. It could be OTs, what have you. Um, I find that establishing a really good team is super, that, that is cohesive, that is working together. Um, that are that their goals are aligned and there's a high level of communication between everybody. I think that is really what's um, so fundamental and critical to the to the, those long term benefits, those long term outcomes. Um, so, I guess by extension, the, the biggest problem that I've faced, admittedly, uh, you know, in, in the short time that I've sort of been in the industry, is when the, that cohesiveness or that team isn't really um, as Uh, working as well together or responding as quickly to one another. So I I think one of the scariest things um, as a SIL provider is that because you're there twenty four seven, when things go wrong, particularly with certain behaviours of concern, it's your support workers that are at risk. (laughs) It's also your brand as well that is at risk when things go wrong. So when you need behaviour support, you know, in there immediately, like yesterday, you've got to go to the the support coordinator to say, hey, we need some things to change ASAP. So, you know, we need support in this way or we need help. And and so you kind of need to, um, you need to have a reactive and proactive team that that, that, that you're working with at, from the other stakeholders. So when I'm choosing participants, I'm not necessarily choosing um, whether or not they've got behaviors of concern or, or what behaviors of concern they have. Um, I'm really choosing the team because it, it you know it all comes down to to, to that for me. Um, so for me that that has been the biggest challenge is is just trying to ensure that everybody remains accountable and you know we all you know we can't always be one hundred and ten percent all the time as well people go on holidays and these sorts of things they that happens but it's about sort of being proactive as much as humanly possible and I mean the humanly part of it because, you know, it is a very humane industry, and we make mistakes. And you know, yeah, but it's about kind of coming back from that. So, yeah, I, I think that for me, that's probably what been one of the biggest ones. I don't know what what Tiffany and Rachel have. I'm curious to actually hear.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's think- so comforting that we are experiencing the same problems on the opposite sides of the country. Can I just say <laughs> it's it's so validating that we are <laughs> that it's the same issues. I get, I, you know, I feel the exact same way. The, the main challenges for us is always the things that are not in our control, you know, and self support yep. doesn't end. We can't just say, oh, I'm so sorry that your hoist didn't get delivered on Wednesday like it was supposed to. And I know we ordered it three months ago <coughs> Let's all talk home, and we'll leave you here and we'll come back when the hoist comes because it's unsafe for us to transfer yep. you without it. That just doesn't happen. And we can, we can call yep. people, we can talk to them on the phone and they can say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then they can hang up and then they can go home, but our, our support workers are the people that are there every day that don't have that option and are often put in unsafe situations or, you know, they're not given the resources that they need to do their job really well, which ne- negatively impacts the support that the participants are receiving. Um, and so it's just absolutely so crucial to build a really strong network of, uh, you know, clinical support and allied health support and you know, a wide range of community at work that are with, at your fingertips and within your reach so that you can pull upon those people when you need them because the the impact of not having those things is just not something that I'm prepared to sit with.
3: And I think to, to add to that, I think that when it, it negatively impacts the participant, then that impacts your your brand, your reputation, Absolutely. which then impacts your ability to service new participants in the future. Absolutely. And those things are, are could largely be out of your control. Yeah, but it still falls on on the civil provider's shoulders, and that that's that's the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, Tiff.
1: Yeah, and I, I feel that way about my support workers. You know, I feel really strongly that yeah. when they come and they. Um, you know they trust in us and they they put a level of responsibility on us to to provide them safe working conditions and and my my absolute number one job is to make sure that my support workers have a safe working environment and when things when things come up and that inhibits their ability to do that um that's what kicks me up at night you know because it's i'm sort of saying to them i'm really sorry but i can't give you all the resources you need to that i know you need to do your job but hey see you tomorrow I'm gonna go home now and I'm gonna leave you here and <laughs> you're just yeah. gonna wing it you know that's, that's not something I so feel comfortable to put my name to so
3: <laughs> I know and and you feel terrible because you there, there's a level of expectations like oh my gosh you know yeah. they've just got to show up to work even though they know that yeah. they're, they've got one one arm tied behind their back and it's yeah. like and, yeah. and, and quite often it can be unsafe situations where you're like yeah, I know. I I know what I'm asking you to do right now is yeah. re-enter that yeah. that environment with it, that that you know is unsafe, that I know is unsafe, and I feel, yeah, it, it's it's definitely something that um that is concerning and and I, I struggle with. But at the same time, given the long term outcomes that we've achieved in such a short period period of time. Yeah. yeah, we all feel like it's 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 worth it, and I think that that's why culture for me and the team environment is such a critical component of the success of Zill.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. Rachel, what what's your biggest challenge?
4: Oh, where do I begin? Um, look, there's so many. I'll rattle off a few. I think it's it's a really high risk service. So, you've got to understand the responsibility. Um, it's larger expenses um, than a traditional service delivery. So, you've got to consider expenses, set up costs, et cetera, ongoing repairs and maintenance. Um, there's a risk there of large gaps in funding. So, you know, you have to float, be able to float. You have to put good cash flow because you have to float. You know, when somebody, doesn't have funding for a period of time, and that can be you know thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you've got that happening over multiple services, it can, can quickly come undone. Um, obviously, rostering looping against the SHADs award, so the SHADs breaches that we have that we face, um, uh, compliance. Um, painstaking, but, you know, we love it. (laughs) Um, Incident management, reportable incidents, like restrictive practices, all of that stuff. Um, Compatibility, both with participants and staff, and how quickly that can undo things as well. Um, Training and education, particularly when you're delivering, you know, someone with complex needs. Um, If you don't have that robust training and education piece, um, you'll quickly become unstuck as well um and we don't shut down so we operate 24 7 365 Mm. so managing stuff like self-care
3: yeah that's a good one actually that that last one was hard for me to learn in this industry because (laughs) you can just go on a holiday if you got four weeks on your leave you know in corporate right you can just it's, (laughs) it's it's good but Still, you know, even even if you were doing community access, um, you could just not book clients for a period of time, right? And you yeah. can just say, "Cool, I'm I'm away. You're gonna have to find someone else." But still, you can't do that. It's their home, right? It's mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you've got that's to our, you've our, got to rock that's
4: up. That's our that's our promise to them that we'll be there for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know?
3: through Christmas, through New yeah. Year's, all of that sort of stuff. You and know, a lot of the time, we
4: are there Christmas.
3: That's right. Know? Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, and and just and And it makes me feel good as well, like making those phone calls and saying, "Hey guys, and then even calling in there and doing Christmas lunches. And it's super exciting because you're 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 doing um these things for participants that often have never had a Christmas that even remotely resembles something that I've been lucky enough to experience throughout my childhood and throughout my adult years as well. So, yeah, it, it, it's it has its um, bad moments, but yes, it has its really, really good moments as well. So.
4: A fulfilling moments, right? Yeah, yeah. Inside,
2: that's right. <laughs> I, I think you really hit the nail on the I head wanted...
0: there. Sorry, Tanya, go for it. Sorry, Paul, you go. Well, I just, I just think, um, I think, Rachel, you really hit that on the head. It is your promise to them because it's their life, and they, they're they're putting their life in your hands, and acknowledging that I think is is one of those first steps that you have to actually come to. I think Josh should have touched on it before. Like, we are taking care of their whole life. So, I think that as a beautiful way that you have, we have made a promise that we are going to help you live independently. And um, I think that can get glossed over as a, that's just part of what we do, but that's a really important thing.
4: Cowboys are great Yeah.
0: Right. So, I, I think too, I
4: that's really been
1: something. You know, it's really been highlighted in the last few years, you know, with COVID and bushfires and floods. Mm. And there isn't a situation that can present itself where we will turn to people and say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to go now. Here's the keys and there's food in the fridge, (laughs) you know, Um, and that is a huge undertaking. But it's also why it's so important that we have to do like we have to have robust pulses and procedures in place. And why we have to manage and take care of our teams so well um, because we just we are never shut <laughs> ever
2: <laughs> now, the, the thing I wanted to pick up on there was um, I think Rachel kind of mentioned it when she talked about large expenses and gaps in funding but I think something that I didn't hear from anyone was the inconsistency of funding between participants and how to claim for participants and the the challenge of managing the Shads Award versus, versus how much money you're claiming and that there's often a gap that you're almost expected just to wear. And I guess that's something, you know, where the Profitable NJS Provider podcast, I guess it's something really to put out there for people who are considering it to think about you talked about floating that you do need cash reserves and this isn't something really that you go into without having some kind of financial backing or a way to manage that if you're going to do it at scale
4: hmm. absolutely
2: does anyone I
3: think you can pick up on that though as well right so um, you know as someone that's as, as a com- you know leading a company that is sort of well on its way to um, developing that and developing that um, that cash flow certainly when I right before I started equal as you know I got the news that the previous company we were all working out was going to liquidation and then got um, sort of tapped on the shoulder to, to consider starting what now has become equal I did all of my cash flow forecasting and modeling to make sure that it was you know it could sustain where it was and I think having really strong modeling and really strong um, cash flow forecasting is is pivotal to to starting seal and making sure that it remains profitable. Um, having and quickly building a um, you know some reserves there, um, and having different options to be able to to uh, float if if required. But also um, and that's again where where good support coordinators will come in and having a good network within the NDIS as well is helpful because you can flag particularly high intensity. Um, participants and, and ensure that those plans are being reviewed semi-regularly and you've got people that are um, fighting and advocating for those um, mm-hmm. participants to ensure that funding is there. I think sometimes though that there is, um, not, not to my experience yet, but certainly what I've heard, um, you know, there are plan managers that really are quite bad at, at, at sort of paying out invoices Yep. Um, and that can be a bit of an issue. I haven't,
0: <laughs> I haven't really, I've had
3: great experiences so far, but, <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've heard that that, that can be quite a, a common issue and particularly with seal that can be devastating mm. because wages are such a huge mm. portion mm. of your costs. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if you're not receiving that sort of funding, it can put you out of business super quickly, um. Yeah. So, again, coming back to that that network and and making sure that all of the key players that are within the, the I guess, the support team of, of one participant, mm. making sure that they're all accountable, they're all doing their job properly, it's super important because we all have to work together. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've at the previous company, have had to say, look, um, you know, had to ring up a plan manager or ring up a support coordinator and say, look, we really need this to get sorted. This has been, you know, we're, we're six weeks in not receiving any funding for this participant and they're you know two to one during the day and they're one to one at night and and that's that is a lot in in um, in wages so you know not to receive that over six weeks is devastating you know yeah. that's I think it was near on 100 grand or something like that
1: yeah I remember one of uh, a workplace that I worked at uh, it was back when they were sort of changing the funding types and you know the the plan reviews happened but then they they never made new service bookings and it was six weeks uh, with two houses that all had three participants in them and there was quite a varying level of support there. Some yeah. participants, you know, two-to-one support, active overnight. There was, you know, close to half a million dollars in money that we yeah. didn't have and we were just, you know, for I think it was like eight weeks or something like that and we were paying those people weekly. Um, it was the, <laughs> the astronomical the liability that you can face in those situations. Yeah. So I think yeah. going into those, you just have to have your eyes wide open. Mm. And,
2: and the other thing I think you've all touched on, but I want to make a point of, is the sheer number of staff. So Rachel, as an example, spoke of 17 sill homes, but I know you have hundreds of staff. In those 17 homes so it's the the scale of the complexity for SIL is what kind of staggers me when a brand new person is talking to me about it is they don't understand that you know i've i've had i've had clients and and people that i've audited who might only have 50 participants but that can be a thousand staff that they then have to manage so it's the all of that people management side of things and i think tiffany spoke about and, and josh talked about culture and I know this is something that Rachel's really good at and really passionate about, but is there anything that you wanted to specifically mention about the element of staffing and how, how different this is in SIL than other areas of, of NGIS delivery?
0: Mm.
4: Was that it? Yeah,
2: Rachel, you could go. Shop. <laughs>
4: Cool. I just wanted to add to that that financial modelling too is that I think that people see, you know, budgets of $250,000 plus, you know, and it's like a shiny little toy that they will see and they go, oh, this must be amazing and profitable. But what they don't actually realise is probably in the realm of all the NDIS supports um, have the tightest margin just due to the considerable overheads that come with running and operating a (laughs) seal.
3: Yeah, and then, and then when you go, to add to that even further, when you go high intensity, there's a lot of other concerns and, you know, things you need to pay for Absolutely. because of yep. potential behaviours of concern, things that go wrong and, you know, just trying to, you know, build that staff culture as well because it becomes even more important because you, 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 you're you almost, um, you know, you have this camaraderie of fighting on the trenches together, you know, <laughs> on the front <laughs> line sort of thing and, and you yeah, that, that's that costs money too, those two building exercises and, yes, and, and I all guarantee of things,
4: you so. the reason why the NDAMs are funding a high intensity support is because it costs a lot of money yeah. to have a skilled support worker that can do that high intensity support. That's yeah. why they fund additionally, because you have to train and educate them to deliver it. Right. Otherwise if something goes wrong, you know, you're your in insurance. Yeah. Well you're in big shit, yeah. you know. Yep. <laughs> so just don't do it. Um, so, yeah, back to your question, Tanya, um, about, uh, like, finding
2: people. Like, it's just staffing um, in general. Like, staffing is on such a massive scale in SIL more than other areas. How do you logistically manage? So, how many staff do you have, Rachel, for your 17 houses and how do you manage all those people?
4: Well, I, I don't manage them. <laughs> that, that would be terrible, terrible. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Wow, um, we have we have 200 staff." I can assure assure you that I do not manage the wall, um, but I have incredible managers in place, which um, which are all purpose aligned with me. And I I hope that what happens is that when we onboard people, we set the precedents to our culture, our expectations, who we are, mm-hmm. you know, and then how we lead then filters onto my management team and that then flows onto our staff. Um, that, you know, we we're we're not corporate, like this is just Alara, like, you know, we're very, you know, person centered with our team as well. Um, So we find lots of ways to connect. So, you know, we have regular team meetings and engagement. We have, you know, events that we all attend just for fun, uh, for anybody that wants to come along. And then obviously there's those things like buy-in, you know, loyalty and retention. There's, um, you know, training and education, all the stuff that, again, is our promise to a staff member when they come on board with us, that we will care for them. We'll give them the tools, resources, and information that they need to do what we're asking them to do. And
0: yeah. Oh very cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that was great. Yeah, I just think the staffing's worth actually pulling out as a point because it's so different. And I think that's what kind of is the difference in my head, and I'm not a cell provider, but from my my viewpoint, the difference between providing a support in someone's home and providing and and making thinking that if you do that well you can easily use It's actually the the scale that skill SIL requires to do it well. And I think it's actually, listening to all of you talk, it is because of this 24-7 operation that it never stops. And I think those things together are, um, I think, important for people to know before they decide to set up a cell home or, you know, be thinking about this in their past.
4: Totally.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, having entered this this industry recently this particular service industry um, recently as well i think that the staff culture and the staff is is literally 100 percent of of what we do yeah. uh, i would never have dreamed or thought about starting equal unless um what happened did happen which was the staff thought yep yeah, well we're doing such great things and we've made such great progress with the participants that we've got we don't want to lose that and we don't want them to go backwards with either other providers or more likely going to an institution um you know it it was that that staff like really all my job is is just to enable wonderful amazing very talented caring individuals to do such great work that's that's my job that's what i my role within equal um i and, and as a result i've i've you know, equal doesn't have uh, it doesn't have a, a hierarchy. We all have a share of voice that is absolutely equal um, to one another because we all have to work together, um, and all all of those individual and unique skills and experience that we bring to the table have very much a valid, um, you know, voice at that table as well. Um, yeah, so so yeah, I, I think that culture is really critical. I've been incredibly intentional with it. I think that HR and having good HR practices is as important as compliance for MBIS. Um, it is, it is everything. Uh, so so if, yeah, if you want to scale, and part of the reason why I'm trying to align all of these processes and procedures even before I consider scaling at all is is because I I when when you do scale, um, you know. Uh, Scaling any kind of business, your um, your service delivery can com- be compromised because you're you're now spread a, a lot more thinly, um, and any sort of administration that you've got going on is starting to. Well, I guess um, when you start to scale, there's a spotlight that comes on any problems that you've got, and it makes them a whole lot bigger because now they're at scale. Yeah. So my whole goal within these last um, you know five months that Equal has been alive is just to really establish those very very concrete structures and hr is is an absolutely a pivotal part of that
0: brilliant yeah very key area that staffing side of things obviously is a a massive area for so many providers doing different um services all across australia but when you have to go at volume in a sill it is just that much more critical right fantastic thank you for that hey look I'd just love to get, you're all at a bit of a different space uh, in your SIL journey at the moment. Could I get your top one or two pieces of advice for a new SIL provider or someone that looking to go like maybe just to their next, next thing? Um, what would be those one or two pieces of advice you would give them, um, preferably not don't start. It's really stressful. But the thing is it's going to help someone get to where they want to go. <laughs> um, so let, let's start with Tiffany. Where? What would you say is your top one or two pieces of advice?
1: Um, I think my first piece of advice would be to ensure that you have a really comprehensive outcome framework. Um, I know I've, I harp on about <laughs> it a lot, but um, it will allow you to create purpose to your support and it will Allow your team to be accountable. Um, having structure to support is what will set you apart from the rest and it's what will have lasting impacts to the people that you are supporting. Um,
0: yeah, I guess
1: the second thing perhaps would be to create really clear boundaries as an organisation, um, including a clear understanding of your risk tolerance. There is large liabilities associated with providing some support and having a clear understanding of what you will and won't tolerate is absolutely crucial yeah. to the success or the failure of your organization.
4: I love um, that, TFC. Yeah.
0: So yep. yeah.
1: You know, there are yep. there are some aspects of support that are just high risk um, that are can really push the boundaries, can raise a few eyebrows, and there's absolutely a place for those types of supports in the industry, and I feel really strongly about that. Um, and it, it just not that place just might not be within your org, and that's okay. But knowing that and being clear and articulate about that from the get-go is really important, being clear and mm. articulate about it to the support workers that are... Um, onboarding, they might not. Their values and their risk tolerance might not be aligned with yours, um, as well as also with the families. And just you know, managing those expectations, I think that's really
0: important. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, that was really good, um, Rachel. What's those one or two top things? Um,
4: all right, um, understand your requirements and how to run an operator still, and know where the bar is in the sector because. You need to meet it, quite frankly.
0: That's
4: mm-hmm. just how it is. Um, if you wouldn't live there, then your participant shouldn't live there. Yeah, great. That's to. Um, ensure you've completed the financial modeling. Mm. And number four, I'm going to have one more. If you don't know, find a coach or mentor who does know and let yeah. them support you through the journey.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Josh. Yeah, I probably think it's pretty uh, fresh for you. What what's uh, the top I rips? think? <laughs> I think net, network
3: for me is is really critical. So um, yeah. you know, as as Rachel sort of touched on, and I think even Ted sort of touched on as well. Really, with the risk appetite, I you know I work with good insurance brokers that can sort of help with that to to illustrate well um, where is our risk and um, you know where are we sort of exposed. But then obviously you need to to work within the industry as well, and, and not and having not come from the industry, obviously um i need to upskill and i needed to upskill quite quickly on all of the areas of exposure mm-hmm. um and so having that good network really did help me to to get the knowledge that i needed and fill in the gaps and what you know i i i don't think um i think that that that's part of the reason why I harp on about sort of culture is whether you've got them employed within your team or whether you're that party of your network, but ensuring that you've got people that represent, um, so many different skills and experience that can help fill the gaps of, of your own knowledge. So network for me is probably, um, number one, uh, you know, starting any business. I think network is, is really critical to help um, establish those good business practices. Um, I guess the, the second one might be more of a, a self care thing as well. Um, I, I learned that the hard way, uh, you know, and, and sort of just kept, um, kept going until there was nothing left to, to give. And then, you know, really, I think this is such an important thing when it comes to, to this industry, um, as I've been told several times that it is rife with burnout for sure, every different level. Um, and I think it's partly because you keep trying to push for, for outcomes, 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 and, um, you know, you want to see that, that positive you, you you feel a sense of responsibility to do it because if not you, then who? Um, and I think it's really important to measure uh, how full your cup is or how empty it is and and constantly be kind of prioritizing not just your own cup but the cup of the business and the brand as well and the cup of the people that you have um, that are within your team too because if that gets depleted, that is a fire Within somebody that may never get reignited again if it gets snuffed out completely. Mm. And so, um, being very protective of that flame and that inner fire is, is really critical. And so that means that, you know, being very careful as Tiffany's touched on with the risk appetite of what type of participants you take on. So it doesn't actually compromise you, the, the business and doesn't compromise the continuity of that business and continuity, um, for, and it's not just a business, it's just, it's also a home. For many participants, it's also yeah. a home for many people that pay for their mortgages, right? Um, and having that level of responsibility and that 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 um, I guess really hard, honest look about where where the business sits in that vulnerability, where you sit as a leader, and then whether where your staff sit as well from that self care perspective,
0: that's really important. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, everyone.
2: I think, I I think I've learned so, so much from you guys today. I think it's amazing to have the three of you with your different viewpoints share them with us. And I, I've made some notes about my summary and see if I've missed anything. But for me, the, the takeaways today, these are like your nuggets, Rachel, that you do in your podcast. Um, the the first thing for me is that SIL really should be a home first and foremost, that making an impact is the biggest reward that you need to start by meeting participants' needs and figuring out what it is they want before you do anything else, Um, that one of the biggest challenges is this idea of never being shut, Um, that from a financial point of view, you need to have cash to float where there might be uh, shortfalls in funding, Um, that HR and people are key, And I haven't tried to summarize your tips for success, but I think I learned a lot from them also. Is there anything that anyone thinks that I've missed as a takeaway for today that you think we need to bold and underline?
4: No,
3: keep doing amazing (laughs) work. I I feel like there's so much to do with SIL and and this industry as well. Um, I could probably talk about it quite a bit, but I think that's a really good summary. Yeah. Thanks,
4: Josh.
3: Fantastic.
0: and,
4: and if
1: you're a cowboy, go ride a horse or something. Yeah. 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 Into out. a sunset. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: brilliant. Yeah. Hey, look, I, I actually just want to live on one last takeaway, which I think was really important Josh touched on a little while ago, was, you know, get, get yourself someone who knows. If you're getting into this, hey, invite someone for a coffee. Go and have a chat with someone who's been there and done it. They'll either scare you or push you forward. Um, and I think that a lot of people could benefit from having a mentor who is uh, who's been through those sort of things. It'd be great for them.
2: So on, on that point, I might just give a few plugs then. So I might give a plug to Rachel, who does have an amazing mentoring program that I'm sure would love to talk to SIL providers about. Um, and only a few Pardon, I didn't miss that. Only if you could. <laughs> Only if you
1: could. It's <laughs> <laughs> an extensive screening process. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: well, and I'll give a plug to um, to Josh, who also um, has a number of things in the pipeline. So if you're a SIL provider in WA, you might want to have a, a, have a coffee with Josh and find out about all of the amazing things that Equal are doing. Um, Josh and I are doing a one-day event coming up that I'm just gonna put out there on the podcast so now we have to do it Josh um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Tiff I'll give you a plug as well do you want do you want to tell us something uh, uh, about your organization that you'd like to plug because I've plugged everybody else
1: look I I guess I would echo everybody else that I really I feel really strongly that it's the people that need SIL deserves. Um, providers that know what they're doing and so I'm always yeah. you know networking with other people um, and mentoring them and giving them advice on how we can make each other better because it's only ever for the benefit of the workforce and um, our clientele.
0: 100%. Yeah, and I'll, yeah I'll back that up. Yeah. Tiff has um, done some amazing work with uh, even some of the crew in our in our group and helped them get the ball rolling help them to understand what's next and help them put those systems in place to make sure that they don't end up on the wrong side of the prison bars uh, when it comes to the NDIS squad. So, <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And to all our listeners, this is the end of season two. So, um, guys, I'd love you just all give, ai like a, guess, a wave and a, and a shout-out, say um, see you later because we're up now. <laughs> Awesome. Brilliant. And guys, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. End of season two. Please join us for season three, which is kicking off in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast with Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. We hope you found today's episode informative and valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating, and share it with others who could benefit from our insights. Until next time, keep thriving.